22. <clears throat> Subject is fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I would label this section, Jesus, the new wine. Uh, and just to talk about what's going on in this section, right? it all begins with the, the pretense for the confrontation, because really these guys are just looking to make trouble. The pretense has to do with fasting, because uh, the disciples weren't, and all the right sort of people, the right spiritual, holy sorts of people, were fasting a lot. So what could be, what's wrong with these guys? Right? Now the law, uh, the Old Testament law, only originally required that the people of Israel fast for one day a year. That was the Day of Atonement. By this time, they had come to have, uh, I think, five days total that they were expected to fast. So it expanded a little bit, five days throughout the year. But as is typical, the Pharisees took something good that they were required to do and took it way over the top. The best Pharisees fasted twice a week, Monday and Thursday. So they're like, hey, we're super spiritual. We're the, we're the bestest, most holiest people around. We fast twice a week. How come your people don't? Right Now, a rabbi was responsible for the behavior of his followers. So really, this is how if your people aren't spiritual enough. How come you aren't spiritual enough? What's wrong with you that your followers are not as holy as us? It seems also that John's disciples fasted often. I don't think there probably would have been out of that self-righteousness aspect, but there must have been something they fasted with some frequency about, whether it's repentance, you know, tied to John's ministry, that the nation would come to repentance, whatever. They clearly fasted a lot. And so they're saying, hey, look, these, all these super spiritual dudes fast a lot. What's your problem? And so this is a very pointed question, right? We have to understand this is directed at not just like, hey, what's the deal with those guys? It's really pointing at, hey, Jesus, why are your people not that spiritual? What's wrong with you as their leader that they're not that spiritual? And he responds with three analogies, three parables, very short parables, if you will, uh, or three comparisons. Either one is, is reasonable to describe it. They are three separate kind of arguments. They are related. The first one directly addresses the fasting question. But number two and three actually are very interesting because they not only address the fasting question, they address every question of why are Jesus and his followers different from the way the Israelites are, the rest of the Jews are. So his first response, his first analogy, his first argument, his first parable is one about wedding guests. All right, it's in verse, verses 19 and 20. All right, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they'll fast in that day. And, 
And he brings in this example of a wedding, because a wedding in Jewish times, in New Testament times, was a big deal. It was a seven-day party. You want to fund a seven-day party? (laughs) Seven-day party, right? And you had to be happy. If you were not happy, you were insulting the guests, the, 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 the bride and groom. So you had to party, you had to celebrate. There was a lot of food. It was inappropriate to fast. It would have been wrong to do. You would have been bringing down the party. Right? You, would have been, you would have been a killjoy. So he's, he's placing it in a situation where it's not appropriate to fast because it's a celebratory moment. And he says, hey, he compares himself to the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. This is a wedding feast. This is a time of celebration. While my disciples are here with me, while I am here with them, right? this is a time when it is not appropriate to fast. And think about it, right? He knows who he is. He is the Messiah. Right? Israel has been waiting for centuries for him to come. This is a time of celebration, or it should be a time of celebration. And so for those who, who are even beginning to get the inkling, it is kind of the festival atmosphere. We've seen in some of these Mark passages, it's like a, it's like a carnival around it, right? It's, a, it's crazy. All right, so, and then so he says, you know, they can't do it. It's not right for them to fast now, but then it's interesting. He predicts, really, he predicts his own death. He's very clear up front right here, chapter 2, because he says that he's going to be taken away. Right? Not that he's going to go away, not that someday he'll pass away, that he will be taken away. Right? So he makes a reference to his own future death, and he says there's going to be plenty of time for them to fast after that. I think that's interesting. I think it's worth noting that it's quite possible that in describing himself as the bridegroom, he's quite possibly making a claim to be God or the Messiah here, because... In the Old Testament, there are a number of times where God describes himself as the bridegroom. There are a number of times where the imagery of a wedding feast or a bridal feast is used to predict the time of the Messiah. Right? So I think it's not an accident that Jesus picks this bridegroom imagery, this wedding imagery for himself. I think there is a reference there where he's very subtly saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm God. Right? Things are... And, and we're going to see it even more so in the next story. He's very much more upfront about that. And so he's saying, look, they're in the presence of the Lord, right? This is time to celebrate. There'll be plenty of time to fast later. And I think it's interesting right now, they're in his presence, so they celebrate by not fasting, right? For centuries later, right? And part of the reason people fast is to, is to be able to focus more closely on the Lord and enter into his presence um, a little more directly. All right, so... I think the key point he's trying to make here with point number one is that he's, he's not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a moral leader or a great teacher or any of these things. And so, so the old standards and the old ways just don't apply to him. The traditions don't, don't make sense because all those other people, the, the, the true prophets and true teachers, were all pointing to something else. They've been pointing to him for centuries. And so to apply the standards of others to him just doesn't make sense. Then he gives us analogy number two in verse 21, or parable number two, if you will. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, I'm not really 
good at the sewing thing or whatever, so I'm going to take his word for it. But if some of you may know that, you know, if this happens to you, the idea is, right, if, you, if you've got a, a shirt or a robe or something that's, that's already shrunk, right, not, not in the days of buying your stuff pre-shrunk from, from Target or Kohl's, but uh, if it's already shrunk and then it tears or whatever, and you put a patch on it and that material hasn't been shrunk before, then when it starts to shrink, bad things are going to happen to the shirt that you've patched. I think the point he's trying to make here is fairly straightforward, that, that Jesus here is, is this new material. He is like a, something new, right? And if you just treat him as some patch that you put on your existing, slightly torn, pre-shrunk religion, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get a mess, right? You don't just apply a little bit of Jesus to your to your situation, to your standard faith and standard practice, and think that you're you're patched, that you're fixed. You know, the he's not Judaism 1.1. He's completely different. We'll see this even more so in the third analogy, the one that sort of sticks more in my mind, right? The the idea of the new wine and an old wineskin. Verse 22. Says no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Um, the science on this, right? If you're not really a wine expert, uh, the new wine hasn't really finished the fermentation process uh, in a completely not interesting to you way, probably. But you know, it, as wine ferments, uh, as the alcohol content goes up, eventually it reaches a point at which the yeast stops fermenting because a level of alcohol kills off the yeast. Um, but until that happens, the wine keeps becoming more alcoholic. It keeps fermenting. And side effect of fermentation is carbon dioxide gas. So if you put new wine, which is not yet fully fermented, this is normal, they would get it to a certain point and then put it in something, right? It would either be a jar or they could put it in a wine skin. If they put it in there, then it's going to age for a certain amount of time. More carbon dioxide is going to build up. It can't escape. So it needs to be in something that either has space in it, like a jar, or something that is stretchy, like a new wine skin. But of course, if you take a new wine skin and you stretch it out on one batch of wine, then you fill it to the top with another new batch of wine, it's not going to stretch anymore. There's no stretchiness left, and it will burst, and all the wine goes on the ground, and, and you've wasted your wine skin and your wine. Uh, obviously, that's unfortunate. Right? Most people would be sad if that happened to them. And that's the image, I think, that Jesus is trying to convey here, right? That he is the new wine, right? They're familiar with wine, right? He's not something in one sense, completely unheard of, because he is, he is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. He flows very naturally from the Old Testament. And yet, he is something completely new and different, because he is God among them. He is bringing them salvation in a completely different way than they could have ever imagined. And so if they try to apply him and put him into their old categories and their old habits and their old understandings, their old practice of faith, it doesn't work because he's God himself. And so, so there are just aspects and dimensions of him infinitely. 
And that's, you know, I think that's important for them to remember. It's important for us to remember, right? That, and that's part of why I sort of emphasizing each week these different aspects uh, of Jesus. It's not that he's a different person from week to week. It's that he has these almost infinite number of facets about him because he's God in the flesh, right? And so anytime we try to put him in a little box and say he's this, and that's all he is, well, we've mischaracterized him. We're trying to put him into our old wineskin when that happens. Right? But he is something unlike anything they have ever encountered before. He is making it clear. And I mean, I think the point is clear. Like, you guys are the old wineskins. I am the new wine. Something new must come around me. That being, I think, the church. So what we have here is he gives us three three parables and three arguments about why old behaviors are inappropriate in the new era of salvation. Right at the heart of it in each of these, but most particularly we see it in the bridegroom idea, is that the time of anticipation is over. You think about all the anticipation you have as you wait for your wedding day to come, right? You get excited and you're planning and you're doing all these these things, if you're ready and, and, and you're looking forward to it, so, and you anticipate it, but he's saying now the time of anticipation is over. It is now the time of the Messiah. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been anticipating the Messiah. Right? I mean, the prophecies of Isaiah were, were over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And there were others even older than that. Right? We talked about some of that during the Advent season. The time of the Messiah is here. Right? The old ways don't apply. Right? Things are different now. And we should expect them to be different. And I think it's important that we understand them in their context. Right? That initially they're about, why, about Jesus and why his disciples didn't follow the expected customs of proper, holy people in Israel. But I think it applies as well to us. There is a principle here that we also need to understand for ourselves, particularly in these last two points, right? which, is, which are not just specifically about fasting. They're about anything that is different and, and the need to be different. And I think, I think what, I, what I was thinking about as I was, reading, was working on this is just that, that we have this Savior, and, and He is always the same on the one hand, right? He is God. He does not change. But He is always fresh. He's always exciting. He is always, in some sense, new, even as he is eternal and unchanging. And so sometimes we have to do different things in order to follow him and serve him. That is why church today looks different from church 50 years ago, looks different from church 500 years ago. Right? Different ways of expressing our faith, different ways of serving him as the world has changed. And we have to remember that we have to make sure that we don't become the old wineskin. That we don't become the old cloth. Right? The church has to always be changing. Not about the core beliefs, not about the core doctrines, not about who Jesus Christ is, but about how we, our mechanism of worshiping, right? Our mechanism of, of, of necessarily serving out in the world, right? And the church, Big C Church, has always changed, right? For 20 centuries. This is why it has grown and in general prospered for 20 centuries, right? The church of Antioch 
is different from the Church of Rome in the Bible, is different from, from you know, churches in the, in the four and five hundreds, different from churches in the thousands, different from churches in the 1900s, different from churches today. But the church renews itself, right? And that's why it has grown and prospered. But individual churches can turn into the old wineskin, right? They need to be periodically renewing themselves too. Every church needs to be periodically renewing itself, looking at what is it that it's doing that's just a tradition, right? It's just what they do, but it's not actually a rule. What needs to be done to renew a church in order to handle, right, and, and be blessed by and express our worship of our ever-fresh Savior? Questions or thoughts about the first section here, this first conflict we're looking at? I, I just say that I think this is a really interesting question about being new to the church um, because clearly Jesus spoke to uh, the folk, the people at this time in language that they understood, customs. And when you start talking about the church needing to change, well, I wonder what he would say if he came uh, back in the 21st century or his, and what he would say to the church because the church population is going going down. What would he say that we as a church, not just Lakers, but the church in general, what have we become in terms of tradition or do it this way or make sure you check off all blocks I don't know. That's an interesting question. Yeah. I thought you would have an answer. I don't, right? I, I mean, I think there's a lot he could say about a lot of churches, right? I mean, because... It's like Jeopardy. Right. Yeah, I know. I, you know, there's a lot he would say about a lot of churches, right? Churches that, are, that have strayed from the faith, uh, the historical Orthodox faith, because that's what churches should not be changing, right? Historical Orthodoxy, what it means to be a Christian, what the Bible says. Uh, but then those churches that are just so hidebound about the way they do business, right, which has nothing to do with how the Bible says to do business. It's not that it's wrong or it wasn't wrong 100 years ago or 50 years ago, but but doesn't work today, right, and is driving people away, uh, is interfering with the people's ability to see see Christ, find Christ. I think you have some things to say about that. All right, any other thoughts on that, questions on that? The second conflict is, in one sense, related. It's about the disciples and what they do. Uh, In another sense, it's different because it's about Sabbath traditions. So it's still about traditions. In this case, it's moving beyond traditions, moving into the law. It's kind of an interesting one. And it's in verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we have another challenge here to Jesus' character and leadership as a result of his disciples. Again, if you are a rabbi, you had followers, their character reflected on you. And you were expected to control them and manage them and make sure they were following all the rules and procedures. And they're going through the fields and they're plucking heads of grain. This was allowed under the law. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says it's okay for people walking through their neighbor's field. If they're hungry, grab a little grain. Uh, But they're doing it on the Sabbath. They're plucking grain on the Sabbath. And this is considered work in that culture. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about how it sort of wound up there in a bit. but, But this was considered work, and so it was therefore considered a violation of the Sabbath laws. And so the Pharisees call him on it in verse 24. It says, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Talk about a loaded question. Why are those people for whom you are spiritually responsible violating one of the Ten Commandments? Because right? it is important. Right? The, 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 the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. This, this matters. And Jesus gives them two answers. I always like them when he gives multiple answers because, you know, it's just like the one-two punch. Yeah. He gives them two answers. The first answer is he uses a comparison to David. And we'll talk about the history of it first and then kind of the significance of his particular choice of argumentation. But, but what he's doing is he's pointing them to an episode in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 6. Uh, David and his men were on the run from King Saul. Uh, they come to uh, they come to the town of Nob. Uh, it says, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So what he has done is he needed food for his, for his men, and the priest says, the only bread I have is what's called the bread of the presence. It's, uh, it was 12 loaves of bread that would be stacked up uh, before uh, in the tabernacle, right? Stacked up uh, on the altar, or uh, sorry, the table uh, for the bread. There was a table just for the bread. 12 stacked up, two stacks of six, a little frankincense on top. Uh, it spends, I think, the rest of the week in the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of the week, uh, the priests are, took it away, replaced it with fresh bread. And then the priests were the only ones legally allowed to eat it. And they had to do it in a holy place. And so what he's done, what, what the priest here did, was he gave it to David. And all he checks is that the, that the, 
that the men are, are ceremonially clean. They're not priests. And they're not eating in a holy place. So the law is being violated. And mercy is basically taking precedence over, over a pure obedience to the law in this case. And both the account of Samuel does not seem to be negative about this event. It seems to be saying this was a good thing. Uh, and Jesus here is clearly endorsing it. So it's an interesting case because it does violate the law, the strict wording of the law. Uh, and yet, mercy won the day. Bread was given. And like I said, Jesus endorses it. And because it involved David, the Pharisees aren't going to argue with it, right? Because David's the superhero of, of the Jewish people, right? They spent centuries, nearly about a thousand years, wishing David would come back. Ironically, he, the one greater than David is here, and they don't, they're not so much a fan, but this is what they've been waiting for. So they, they go with it. Uh, and so that's his argument, right? If David can, in the interest of, of mercy and need, get an exception to the law, why shouldn't my people be able to pick some food when they're hungry on the Sabbath? The interesting significance of this is he's just compared himself to David. Because it would be easy enough to come back and be like, well, he's David. He's super special. He's in some special category. You're, you're just a rabbi. You're just a teacher. But they don't come back on that. But it's interesting. He, just, he has just put himself in a comparison with David. Right? I think here he is he's tacitly claiming his authority. Right? David is kind of justified in doing this because he's the anointed of the Lord. And of course, that is what Messiah means, the anointed. Right? I think Jesus here is, is tacitly claiming the, the authority and the justification of being the Lord's anointed in this comparison. They don't, give a, don't seem to give a specific response to this uh, that they record, but I've got to think that they're like not happy about this uh, because of that comparison. So then he goes on to, to argument number two. That the whole point of the Sabbath is that it's supposed to be a blessing. Not a burden, not a curse, not a thing that makes your life worse. And this is an interesting point, because the Sabbath really was the distinctive mark of the covenant of Moses. We think of circumcision, but circumcision was really the distinctive mark of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Everyone from Abraham on was supposed to be circumcised. Uh, you're still supposed to be circumcised in the time of Moses, but that was not the distinguishing mark or the new mark that came in with the covenant of Moses. The thing that that probably most prominently comes in with the covenant of Moses is maintaining the Sabbath, this idea of rest, of entering into the Lord's rest once a week. I think this is why it is so important, why there's so much stuff talking about the punishment when you violate the Sabbath. Right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. I've mentioned before, I've already done finding in this Bible if I want to bookmark it because the pages stick together. Right, but here in the middle of the, the, the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Right, it's not just that it's for you to kick back, it's to be devoted to God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And there are consequences elsewhere laid out in the Bible in the Old Testament for, for violating the Sabbath. So this was really important. All right, so earlier on the fasting point, that was just kind of a tradition. It was a habit. It was whatever. But here we're talking about the law. We're talking about a commandment. But it was a commandment was there that was supposed to be blessing people. Right? It was supposed to be a chance to participate in God's rest. Right? This is one of the particular blessings of being made in God's image. Right? This is the rest that God had promised the people. And so while, yes, there were penalties for violation, it was never supposed to be a curse or a burden. You weren't supposed to be like really like, oh man, not another Sabbath. Oh, I can't believe i got to drag myself to the synagogue. Right? It's not supposed to be a burden. Church is the same way, by the way. That's not supposed to be a burden. Now, as seems to have happened a lot of times in those days, what started out as a fantastically great idea in Scripture had had some stuff built onto it. So the Mishnah, we've talked about that a little bit. It's the rabbinical commentary on the law. Starts with the law, then says, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. The Mishnah had expanded it and had defined 39 different activities that were work. That includes plucking grain. Depending on your rabbinical school, that also could include praying for someone's healing. So there were things you were not allowed to pray for on the Sabbath, interestingly enough. Uh... You were allowed, if, like, if somebody was under like death, you know, terrible life-threatening injury, you could do medical treatment, but you couldn't pray for them to get healed, depending on your rabbinical school. One school said it was okay, one school said it wasn't, right? But that's, that's part of, actually, <clears throat> the one we're not reading. The fifth conflict is when he, he heals the man with the, the paralyzed hand. He's healing, he's praying for healing, and so he's violating the, one of those 39 categories of work you're not supposed to do. And so... So I think they had successfully managed to turn the Sabbath from a blessing into a burden. Because there's so many rules, right? And I, don't, I, don't have, I can't list them all off the top of my head. There's rules about how many steps you could take on a Sabbath to not be work, right? Um, if you step more than that, it's work, you're a bad person. And what Jesus says here, essentially his argument, right, in the, the last few verses here, it says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, right? He's saying the Son of, Son of Man is Lord of mankind. Sabbath was made for mankind, therefore Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I can't even imagine what their response has to be to this, right? Because God is the one who created the Sabbath, and here he's saying he is the Lord of it. This had to be striking. And again, you know, the next thing we're going to see is another Sabbath day healing. At that point, that's when the Pharisees decide this guy's got to die. So we're very close to this point, and, and I've got to think this is about. And so we see, once again, something very similar to what was in that, that previous uh, conflict, right, which is that Jesus is really establishing a new pattern. He's saying, look, I am not like anyone you have ever seen before. I am unique. I am God in the flesh. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the new wine. 
And so he's established something new. And then, and my questions, right, that I would wonder about here, right, the Sabbath starts out as a blessing and it has been turned into something of a straitjacket, right? Something that was meant and given by God as a good thing and, and, and to be wonderful had turned into something that at times was opposite the reason God gave it. It was just a straitjacket. It was difficulty. And I, so my question that to think about, right, to, to, we don't have to answer it, but think about it is, is are there good things right, that God has given us in our lives that were given to us as blessings, but they've become straitjackets? They've come to limit our, our blessing and it, that stand in the way of our showing mercy or, or human kindness. Right, that stand in the way, or the things about our, our worship or our facilities as a church, right, that, or, or our budgets, our ministries that started out as a blessing. God gave them and we were richly blessed by them. But somehow they've become a straitjacket. They stand in our way of serving God now rather than, than being the blessing they were intended to be. Are there things about our busyness or our, our religious practices that are causing us to miss the bigger point of what God has called us to do and to be. That's my, my questions. I'm sort of trying to contemplate through this and encourage you to contemplate as well.